Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. Last month, when many Fox News hosts were putting a positive spin on President Trump's low turnout Tulsa rally, Fox News Sunday anchor Chris Wallace didn't mince words. He told a Trump aide the campaign looks silly for not owning up to the crowd size. We ha- I'm telling there are empty seats there. Joe Biden there were t- at least a third, if not a half, of the rally was empty. Uh, the arena was empty. I'm say that- Moments like these have earned Wallace the ire of Trump, but the anchor also takes heat for his association with the controversial conservative network. He'll join us to talk about the latest headlines and his new book, Countdown 1945. It's all about the election of Harry Truman and the bombing of Hiroshima. And that's next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Fox News Sunday anchor Chris Wallace has spent more than 50 years in broadcasting, winning three Emmys and a Peabody Award for his reporting. And he's now the author of a new book, Countdown 1945, an account of the days between the election of Harry Truman and the bombing of Hiroshima. He joins us now to talk about the book, Fox's complex relationship with President Trump and much more, including what it's like to cover the coronavirus at a network that has been criticized for downplaying its threat. And welcome, Chris Wallace. Well, welcome to you, Michael. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. And first, let me commend your book, which I read with great interest. It reads like a novel, as a number of people have said, and I felt that indeed. And uh, it's an important novel. I think it contributes something really to world history and American history and uh, a good pulsating read. So we'll talk about it. And uh, I look forward to talking about it. But I need to talk to you about opinions. And I know you're a fact guy, uh, just the facts and not necessarily see yourself as the opinion guy at Fox. But I want some opinions from you, if I could, to start out. And one has to do with a recent news story about the president saying 99% of uh, COVID is uh, nearly completely harmless. There's been a good deal of criticism of the network you work for, and I know you're seen as somewhat of the outlier there, but the criticism has to do with, and I know you don't want to go after individual colleagues, and we won't do that, it has to do with a kind of culpability that the network simply amplifies the president's views and has made it very difficult for progress against the virus. Your thoughts, well, your opinions. <laughs> you know, look, I am responsible for what I do. And I made a decision very early on with this coronavirus, which is clearly, you know, I've never seen in my 72 years on this earth anything like it. Never dreamt that I would see anything like it where, you know, you have to wear a mask to go out in public. Uh, that I was going to be all about facts, and that and that uh, I wasn't interested in spin. I 
I deal with Spin as a political reporter. I've been doing Fox News Sunday uh, for almost 17 years now. So I'm used to Spin and I don't mind it. That's what politicians do. But when it came to uh, the coronavirus, I've been all about the facts. And almost every week, we have had a nonpartisan public health official on the show to tell us the facts. And, uh, you know, whether it's somebody from the White House task force, we had in the early days, Tony Fauci and Deborah Burks, and uh, I think one or twice, we once or twice, we had Jerome Adams, the Surgeon General. And then we found a couple of truly independent people, one in particular, Tom Inglesby, who's the head of the Center for Health Security at Johns Hopkins. And I have had them on and had them uh, first just their view of where the, the coronavirus stands and, uh, and then the comment on, on various comments that have been made by public officials or you know, uh, politicians, public officials of either stripe, Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, and act as a kind of fact check on it. So that's what I'm about. Well, if you're about facts, I have to ask you about one that is really disturbing, and that is, uh, since you've been covering the coronavirus pandemic since it started, why do you suppose the United States has 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's COVID-19 deaths? Uh, I don't think we've handled it as well as we should have. And um, I think one of the, the things that, that troubles me a great deal is the fact that uh, I think way too soon, the president and a number of, um, of governors were in a rush to reopen the country. And I can understand that. And I don't in any way minimize the pain of, of what it's like to be locked down and perhaps to lose a job and not be able to pay your, your mortgage. But it seems to me we should, you know, there, there've gotta be ways around it, whether it's federal aid or forgiveness or whatever. One solution that you can have is to ignore it. You know, I, I've said right from the beginning, the, the virus doesn't care about spin. It doesn't care about people's political views. Uh, it doesn't care if you're a liberal or conservative. It's, you know, it's like talking about a hurricane or a tsunami. It's, it's a fact of nature. It's a biological fact of life. Uh, and you, you, can't, you can't pretend it's not there because it is. And we're now, I think, paying a, a terrible price for the fact that, that uh, we, we tried to pretend that it was going away when it wasn't. And I was listening to the news at the top of the hour on NPR and your, your station here. And they were talking about the fact that Florida is saying, well, you know, the vast majority of people in Florida are in their 20s and they're not gonna die. Well, I know, but, but you know, you can still get terribly sick and you can have lasting health impact and you know even with the with the fatalities down there i think this yesterday over 300 people died that would be like a super jumbo jet crashing every day and oftentimes it's two or three and you know we would set our hair on fire on that and the idea that somehow because it's 300 who die instead of 2000 that it's acceptable it isn't and let me get back to the question i initially started with though chris and that is uh I know you don't want to diss your colleagues here, but there have been a number of studies that point out that the severity of the epidemic uh, certainly was exacerbated by, and these are pretty well-financed and certainly uh, in, in many ways certainly reputable studies, that infections and mortality rates are higher in places, for example, where Sean Hannity was watched more. Uh, there's a Harvard, that's not a Harvard uh, study uh, from the Kennedy School, or there's 
when there's more reliance on Fox, or for that matter, Rush Limbaugh, they had a, a number of uh, studies, Kathleen Hall Jamison uh, and uh, Dolores Alberain of the University of Illinois is the one I'm thinking of, but people were more likely to believe conspiracy theories, more likely to believe, for example, exaggerated theories of the pandemic being a hoax and uh, being designed to damage President Trump. I mean, these are serious issues, and they get at the heart of what has to be part of the whole equation of figuring out who is to blame for this thing having gotten so out of control. Well, I, I, look, I, I'd say a couple of things. Uh, one, I'm not going to diss my colleagues. I just don't see any point in it. Uh, people can make up their own minds about that. I do what I do, and uh, I'm all about uh, giving people the best, most scientific information that we can. Uh, you know, I'll just say this generally, to the degree that anybody has minimized uh, the, the coronavirus or pretended that or stated that it isn't a serious thing, I think that that is a disservice. And, I'd, you know, I'd also point out that, that a lot of the places that may be watching conservative uh, opinion makers, opinion talk show hosts, uh, also tend to be red states like Florida, like Arizona, like Texas, where more conservative governors were slow to close down and were early to open up. So to be able to, you know, to say, because some radio talk show host said something that that caused the spread of the coronavirus, I think may be a bridge too far. But I, look, I, I, again, I, I think that all of us who have a platform, who people listen to, have an obligation to give the facts, the best scientific information and advice we can provide. Well, let me go then to a question that has to do with climate change. And that uh, I know you've been criticized for this, and I'd like to hear your response. Uh, interviewing uh, in a Green New Deal program, Rush Limbaugh, and there's the radio talk show host again who called climate change a hoax. And you were criticized for not pushing back. Is climate change something that's not factual as you see it? Or maybe you didn't have time to push back? I'd like maybe you'd explain what happened. I don't, I don't even remember with Rush Limbaugh, but anybody I would commend to them to watch the interviews I did with Scott Pruitt when he was the head of the EPA. And I was very strongly uh, critical uh, of him, asked him a lot of tough questions, and I'm on the record. I, uh, you know, I make no bones about it. I believe that climate change exists and that the globe is warming, and uh, you know that we need to address it. And and actually, I have um, have thought my, myself. You know, there is a sense, particularly in the early days, but I think still still now, but particularly in the early days when we had no idea how bad this was going to get. And, and uh, you know, as bad as it is now, it was worse in the beginning, certainly in terms of, of fatalities, um, it, with, when it was sitting in New York and uh, the Northeast. Um, I thought to myself, you know, here's something that we had no control over, and people are terribly frightened by the fact that we've never, most people uh, that are listening, you know, aren't, aren't Aren't, uh, weren't around 100 years ago for the Spanish uh, pandemic, the Spanish flu. Um, you know, we, we've never been in a situation where uh, a, a health uh, crisis was out of control. And it, it's scary. There's no question. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening were scared, and probably many of them still are scared. Uh, we have a better handle on it today. And I thought, what if 10 years from now or 20 years from now, the scientists say, we, you know, we, we are out of control on global warming. And, and uh, we've, we've gone too far without carbon emissions and without reducing the temperature on the globe. And we're now going to see 
irreversible health effects in terms of the melting of the ice caps or the rising of uh, of oceans or you know or changes to our to our climate how doubly terrifying would that be one that we would have something we couldn't control and two as opposed to the coronavirus that we contributed to it so um michael <laughs> i i think i'm firmly on the record when it comes to climate change well does it bother you that there's so much uh shall we say inattention to climate change on your network and for that matter other networks uh fox news uh, i guess was clocked in at about 14 minutes in 2019 that was up from 10 in 2018 and 42 was a fact in 2017, but, uh, and there were four. Well, I, I know that I've done, you know, I mean, I know it's your job to try to get me uh, to bash my colleagues. Uh, they do what they do. I do what I do. You got Chris Wallace here for an hour, Michael. I would suggest, why not ask me about what I do? Because I'm not going to sit and talk about other people at Fox. And, no, I'm not trying know, to get you. Uh, let me let me uh, clarify that. I'm not trying to get you to bash your colleagues, and this is not gotcha journalism or anything, but I think many of our listeners are concerned with the way Fox covers the news, and I want to find out, you know, uh, beyond the role that you've had, which is a very significant role in terms, I mean, you're a registered Democrat, I know that, and you also uh, have a, a sterling reputation as someone who is indeed behind the facts, but the facts are that uh, when Fox covers the news, it covers it uh, in very different ways, and sometimes ways that simply don't gel with the facts. And you've said, I think, you've been on record as saying that you have a strong opinion. You don't like it when people talk about the news in very pejorative ways, which is certainly done throughout this country, and particularly uh, kind of uh, from the administration itself, if you will. Uh, the, the fact is, you know, you have a president who calls uh, journalists the enemy of the people. Um, it must bother well, you. I've been strongly, uh, Michael, I've been strongly on the record on that, and I'm happy to say what I think, which is that I think that this president is involved in the most concerted anti-media uh, campaign uh, in history. And, I, you know, I gave a speech at the museum when the museum was closing, and I said that, and somebody tweeted me and said, you know, Wallace, you're wrong. Uh, look at John Adams and the Sedition Act. And I said, I wrote back and I said, you know, I stand corrected. It's the worst anti-media campaign by a president in 200 years since uh, John Adams and the Sedition Act of, uh, of 1800 or whenever exactly it was. I, I would add, however, that, I, and, and I think this is something that, that maybe your listeners don't hear as often, um, but I think it's equally important, is that I think that too many in the media have made a mistake in reaction to the president, and I'm very critical of how he's handled the press, uh, in becoming advocates themselves. Uh, you know, I'm, there are plenty of places, and I don't particularly want to call them out either. Again, I mostly would like to talk about my work, Michael, but, uh, you know, I think that there are some uh, other news networks that uh, I think have become advocates. And if you watch the, the straight, quote, straight news reporting, not the opinion shows during the day on those new other news networks, uh, you're not getting just the facts either. You're getting uh, rants against President Trump. And I understand that that they feel that way legitimately. Uh, no, I have to agree with I, you. That what, what you hear on MSNBC is gotta be, as critical of the be president as the I'm sorry, Pardon? we were cross-talking there for a moment. I was just saying, I have to agree with you that MSNBC is as critical of the president as Fox is supportive, but- I, I think what... CNN is as well, and I think it's a terrible mistake. Um, I, I think that we ought to be straight, and we ought to be even-handed. And look, 
here's what I would say about Fox. There's a, there's a news side of Fox and there's an opinion side of Fox. And, you know, if people don't like the opinion on Fox, then don't, don't watch it. Um, you know, it's easy. You can vote every day just by, by your remote control. And, uh, and, and I don't think most people are confused about the difference between the opinion side of Fox and the news side of Fox, which, and in fact, I would argue that there's more of a firewall between the news and opinion side of Fox than there is between the news and opinion side of CNN or MSNBC. And if you just joined us, we're talking with Chris Wallace, anchor for Fox News Sunday and author of Countdown 1945. The extraordinary story, the 116 days that changed the world. And I do want to, as I said, talk with you about the book. One of the things I believe you said you enjoyed about writing Countdown was that it had nothing to do with Trump and you could sort of uh, remove yourself or exercise Trump from the process of writing the book. I have to ask you just one more question, though, about Trump, because I recently interviewed Eric Larson, uh, who did an excellent book on Churchill. And I asked him, I read it. It was excellent. And I asked him straight up, you know, uh, what are we talking about when we're talking about Churchill's leadership versus Trump's leadership? And he was very cogent. He said to me, we're talking about the difference between division and inspiration on the one hand and what Trump represents as far as uh, Eric's concerned. I think I'm quoting him pretty uh, carefully here or certainly paraphrasing pretty carefully. Uh, Can you compare the leadership of give him hell Harry Truman to Donald J. Trump? Well, you know, as I said, and I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, go away from what I was saying. One of the joys of writing this book well, and, and researching the book, writing it, now talking about it. And you're not the first person to ask me this is it has nothing to do with Donald Trump. And, you know, I think you can draw your own conclusions. But I you know, I didn't write this book to, to praise Trump or bash Trump. And, and when I say that it has nothing to do with Trump, I don't mean that, you know, I don't mean it as a, either a positive or a negative. Um, I, I, I just, you know, as someone who does a Sunday talk show, we, we drink, we inhale uh, Donald Trump like we're drinking out of a fire hose, and it's, it's all Trump all the time. Pro him, anti him, you know, what he did good, what he did bad. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, what, what, I'm, what was such a relief in writing Countdown 1945 was the unity of the country. Everybody was out he or she that they wanted to do their part to help in the war effort to beat the Nazis in Europe and the Japanese in the Pacific. And as I tell the story very early on in, in the book, uh, 125,000 people were involved for more than two years in the Manhattan Project to develop the, the atom bomb. And there was not a single leak of it. No word ever got out. It it turned out there were some Soviet sympathizers who penetrated the project and and spies, and they told the Russians. But nobody uh, sat there and and got on their high horse and said, this is immoral, and we're going to therefore stop it. You know, I can't help but think today, Michael, if we had a secret project to bake a new kind of apple pie within two days, somebody would come out as a whistleblower and say this was immoral and we got to stop it. And it, it just was such a relief to be to be in a time, and you, when you're writing a book, <clears throat> excuse me, you kind of immerse yourself in that time when everybody was unified and common cause to do something for the country and, you know, do their part. And that was to defeat the enemy and win the war. 
Yeah, we can feel uh, certainly a great deal of nostalgia for that time, even though you and I didn't live through it. But uh, you lived through it through the book, and the book is really a sweeping and detailed picture, not only of the Manhattan Project, I should say, but also of the B-29 flight crew and about, as you've indicated, the secrecy that went on and the, the unity that went on. I'm going to give out the phone number. We're going to talk more about your book and more about Fox News and politics and what's really being made in the news now and what's in the headlines. If you would like to join us with Chris Wallace, if you have a question or a comment for him, you can do that toll-free wherever or however you're listening to Forum. Toll-free number to join us is 866-733-6786. I'll repeat that. Toll-free, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And I was commending you before about the book because uh, you and Mitch... uh, Weiss, your, your co-author, I think, did a really good job, kind of granular job, but also a job in pacing uh, and in just drawing the readers in and engaging them. What I was struck by, though, was also the fact that you went beyond the story to uh, some details that you normally don't get with this kind of narrative. Uh, a 10-year-old girl, for example, who survived Hiroshima and a woman who worked at the plant. Uh, those kinds of stories really need to be told, and I'm glad you told them. Absolutely. Well, let me just go back for a minute. I'll try not to to, to filibuster here. Uh, As a host of a show, I know when guests go on too long. I wanted to write a history thriller. You know, I think so many books are written after the fact. Well, they're obviously all written after the fact, but they they sound like they're written after the fact. And, you know, we know what happened. Why did it happen or how did it happen? And I wanted to take you along for a ride. And, and, you know, Countdown 1945, I thought that was the vehicle where we begin on April 12, 1945, when Harry Truman is summoned to the White House uh, and, and is told that, that FDR, he's only been vice president for 82 days and been almost completely ignored by FDR, uh, who had only met with him privately twice. He thinks he's going to the White House to meet with Roosevelt, and Mrs. Roosevelt says, Harry, the president is dead. Uh, and later that day, after he's sworn in, the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, uh, takes him aside and says, I need to tell you about an immense project to create the most powerful weapon in history. That is literally, even though he's been vice president for almost three months, that had Harry Truman had any inkling of the Manhattan Project to build the atom bomb. And, but as it's not just his story as he grows in stature and experience and makes the decision to drop the bomb. As you say, it's it's also about the scientists at Los Alamos who don't know until July 16th, three weeks before it ends up being dropped, whether or not it's the gadget, as they call it, is even going to work. The flight crew, which doesn't know when it goes to drop the bomb on Hiroshima, whether the aftershocks are going to be blown out of the sky. But I also thought, you know, that everybody was involved. I talked about the, the United effort. So I, we tell the story of Ruth Sisson, who's a 19-year-old girl working uh, at a secret project. And she has no idea what she's doing. She's keeping the, the, the dials uh, in the green, not in the red, uh, on, on something called a Calatron machine in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. What she doesn't realize is that she's enriching uranium. And she's very concerned because her, her boyfriend, later her husband, uh, is in the European theater, the, the Nazis surrender. And she's terrified that he's going to be sent to an even bloodier conflict in the Pacific. And then, as you say, we tell the story of this 10-year-old, Hideko Tamura, who's on the ground in Hiroshima and is there when the bomb drops. So, so we, you know, it's not just, and we try to tell the scientists and the, and the politicians and the military, 
that we also tell about a, a, a young girl on the home front and an even younger girl who's at ground zero. We'll talk more with Chris Wallace. We'll take your calls. And again, if you'd like to join the program, you're welcome to do that. You can get in touch with us by phone. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Or on Twitter and Facebook, we're at KQED Forum. Or email us, forum at kqed.org. His new book is called Countdown 1945, The Extraordinary Story of the 116 Days That Changed the World. I'm Michael Krasny. Listening to Forum, I'm Michael Krasny. We're spending this hour with Chris Wallace, anchor for Fox News Sunday and author of Countdown 1945, The Extraordinary Story of the 116 Days that Changed the World. And before we go to calls, and uh, I know there are a lot of listeners who want to join us uh, and talk with you, Chris, I want to talk a little bit more uh, about your book, if I may. Uh, I was wondering, first of all, about the fact that I read Richard Rhodes' excellent book on the A-bomb, and I remember coming to the realization then that and a lot of people probably don't realize this uh sounds like president trump uh but um sorry the the fact of the matter is truman uh, the haberdasher from missouri did might make this decision by any means alone and you make it very clear in the book we're talking about a committee decision that not only include truman but oppenheimer and the president of harvard and physicist enrico fermi i mean this was something that was not just ex cathedra if you will from harry truman like some people assume No, uh, but having said that, you know, to coin a phrase, the buck stops here. And he was the one who had to give the go order. I would say three things about his decision-making. I covered, you know, I've interviewed seven presidents and I covered Ronald Reagan as the White House correspondent for NBC for six years. So I'm I'm really kind of a student of presidential decision-making. And three things impressed me. One was exactly as you just suggested. He was meticulous in his decision-making. He sought out every you know, possible point of view that, that made sense, his war cabinet, scientists, uh, all kinds of people, um, and, and did it over and over again. Part of the reason, because as he's sitting there trying to begin to make the decision, he has a meeting of his war cabinet in, in July, and rather June of 1945, uh, as he described it, the the atom bomb, the Manhattan Project, was still a science pro- uh, project. It had never been exploded. It wasn't until July 16th. So they're having this discussion until July 16th and kind of, uh, you know, in, in, in kind of the abstract, because he doesn't know whether the bomb is gonna, even going to work. Secondly, he, he sought out all opinions, uh, even ones that, that uh, you know, were, even after he'd made the decision to drop the bomb, uh, from people who objected. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander, they meet on, I think it's uh, July 20th, or maybe the 24th, and and uh, they, in Potsdam, he's there for a big three summit with uh, Churchill and Stalin, and Eisenhower says, I don't think you should use the bomb, and uh, I think, one, that the Japanese are going to surrender anyway, and secondly, I don't think that the U.S. should be the country that introduces the bomb. Uh, you know, I don't think we should introduce this new, the really true weapon of mass destruction. And he, he's not put off by it. He, he doesn't follow the advice, but he's he welcomes it. And the third point I'd make is there's this 
And I must say, I went into the, the searching the book thinking that, that Truman was famously decisive. He made a decision, then he never, he never looked back. That's not true in this case. He, he agonized over what I think you could argue is the biggest decision any president ever had to make. Um, he complained of terrible searing headaches, which he had whenever he was under stress. He couldn't sleep at night. And one of the joys as a historian, as opposed to a reporter, is you're able to read the diaries uh, that, that they wrote and uh, the letters they wrote to their loved ones. So you get a much greater, deeper sense of the inner conversation. And one of the points about Truman is that, that he wrote about the, the bomb once he knew that it could work after July 16th in the most apocalyptic terms. Um, he said it was the fire destruction that had been prophesied in the Bible. So um, he, he knew this was a momentous decision and he treated it that way. When you mentioned getting inside the mind of Harry Truman, which you do deftly, um, I wonder what your thoughts are on that, just in terms of the technique that's used. For example, you mentioned Potsdam, uh, and you write about his meeting Stalin at Potsdam and kind of looking at Stalin like he was a squirt because he didn't realize uh, Stalin didn't quite have the stature. He was Joseph Stalin, after all, the man of steel. But I was wondering about that technique. Uh, it goes back to Woodward and Bernstein, really, where you're sort of more in the mind of your character, historical character, for that matter. Well, the only difference I'd say is in, in the case of, and I'm, listen, I love the Woodward Bernstein books, but they're talking about reporting on events and recounting conversations uh, and, and uh, you know, that, that nobody else has reported on before. In the case of a lot of the reactions I, I give in the book, you know, th this is from Truman's own word from his diaries and his letters, and you're exactly right that when he finally sees uh, Stalin for the first time, and he's never been on the world stage, and he look, looks up and there's Joseph Stalin, and he's all five foot five inches of him, and he's seen these newsreels over the years of Stalin towering over his generals in the newsreels, and then he says he's a little bit of a squirt. You know, that that's the kind of delightful, delicious detail that you're able to get, and you're not speculating or reporting without sourcing. Uh, this comes from historical writings by Trump. And again, we're talking with Chris Wallace. His new book is Countdown 1945. And here's John from Pacifica joining us. John, you're on the air. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. Mr. Wallace, I um, am wondering if your book covers uh, the details of how Truman was sort of forced on FDR during the 1944 convention and where the Democratic Party decided to dump Henry Wallace and uh, whether, you know, obviously there would have been a different um, destination, whether the bomb would have been dropped if Henry Wallace had been the president after FDR died, um, and if, if part of the party machine was um, pushing to, to see this come to fruition, to have the bomb dropped, and that Truman was maybe more malleable? No, I, well, first of all, thank you for the question, and we do cover it, uh, and, and you're exactly right. Uh, in 1944, and Truman was kind of a backbench senator, not terribly well-known. And in fact, he had already decided that he was going to go to the convention in Chicago and deliver the nominating speech for Jimmy Burns, who had been a, a senator and then a Supreme Court justice. And then somehow FDR had talked about giving up his seat on the court to become the head of the Office of War Mobilization. And uh, you're right that the Democratic Party leaders, uh, the Democratic Party chair, a fellow named Robert Hannigan, uh, really wanted 
Wallace off the ticket because I, they thought he was just too far to the left and too much of a socialist. And they were very concerned. Um, and, and you see this running through through the book that a lot of people were that, that Roosevelt was not going to uh, survive a fourth term, um, which was what he was elected to in uh, November of 44, and that whoever the vice president was would end up being president. Roosevelt didn't seem to share that, and that's part of the reason that I think he ignored uh, Truman as vice president for 82 days. No, I think that the reason that, that they wanted him, they, first of all, none of them knew about the bomb, uh, the, the Democratic Party leaders. They thought, one, uh, that Wallace was too far to the left, and if he became president, would damage the Democratic Party. Uh, and two, making a calculated decision, uh, they were looking around for the person who would damage the ticket the least. It sounds like an odd way to choose a vice president, but Maybe, maybe not the worst way, and they came to the conclusion that Harry Truman, uh, you know, was sufficiently non-controversial that he would it would basically be Roosevelt and some other guy on the ticket. And at the time, only two percent of people in the Gallup poll, and yes, they had Gallup polls in 1944, um, were for Truman. He was very much an afterthought and didn't really want to be on the ticket, and was kind of forced onto it. Uh, by Hannigan and and Roosevelt, who was uh, in San Diego at the time, and with, uh, Truman was the witness to a staged phone call between Hannigan and Roosevelt, where Roosevelt said, "Is that that uh, that Missouri mule uh, Truman going to resist being on the ticket and maybe sink the Democratic Party in the middle of the war?" Again, our guest is Chris Wallace, and his new book is called Countdown 1945. He is anchor for Fox News Sunday, and the book is about the extraordinary story of the 116 days that changed the world. Indeed, when you think about the atomic bomb, it changed the world. It might have been a prophylactic, too, uh, to keep us from using nuclear weapons, at least up until the point we're at right now. And if you'd like to join us, you can do so toll-free at 866-733-6786. I want to get to some comments, though. Here's Kelly, who writes, I'd like to ask whether Chris Wallace recognizes that everyone was united in common purpose, as he said, in 1945 was likely more true than it is today, but it was also a time when people of color in our country were still subjugated to extreme discrimination and injustice. No argument there, I say, huh? No, no argument there. Um, and, and look, we've, we've got problems. When I, I don't mean that it was some utopia where everybody was fine. Uh, what I'm saying, though, is that there really seemed to be a unity of purpose, you know, a sense that everybody was going to uh, do his part, uh, and that I'm sure, and I've done stories about, uh, you know, people of color uh, in the war effort, the Tuskegee Airmen, the Red Tails, uh, you know, I, they were united as, as well um, in, in supporting the war effort. But Here's Paul joining us. certainly no utopia. <laughs> Let me, uh, Paul, go to you next. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yes. Yes. Are you aware that both Germany and Japan were aware of, of the capability of a bomb like that, but didn't couldn't afford to, to build it? Well, uh, I, I'm certainly aware that Germany was, and that really was the genesis for the Manhattan Project. Uh, Albert Einstein writes a letter to FDR in 1939, and basically says. Uh, you know, the, the Germans are some of the great scientists in the world, and they're working on a nuclear project, and we sure want to have it before they do. 
Uh, and then in 1942, Churchill becomes aware of some intelligence that indicates that the uh, atom bomb project in Germany is progressing. And really, that's the point at which he gets uh, Truman to, to gear up and to, uh, to start the, the Manhattan Project. So yes, they were very uh, aware of Germany's efforts, and not so much Japan, but they, they were very aware. But, and, and I tell a great story in, in the book, in Countdown 1945, where uh, Truman and Churchill, one of the things they, they had been working very much in partnership on the Manhattan Project, they had not told Stalin at all uh, about the existence of the project. And one of the things now that they knew after July 16th that the bomb worked was that they had to tell Stalin since he was an ally of sorts. Um, and so after a session, I think it's on July 24th, Truman goes over to, uh, to, to Stalin after a session at the uh, Potsdam conference. And uh, the only people that are there are Truman, Stalin, and Stalin's Russian translator. And he says, I just want to tell you that uh, we have a new weapon uh, of undescribable power. And uh, Stalin, through his translator, says, I hope you'll use it to good effect on the Japanese. And then he turns and walks away. And uh, so everybody's Truman is stunned that, that Stalin doesn't have more of a reaction. And Churchill comes over and says, well, what did he say? And he recounts it. And they're both kind of puzzled that that uh, Stalin hasn't reacted more. And in fact, as we report in Countdown 1945, Stalin was interested. He just wasn't surprised because in fact, he was a, a spy, a German who had defected and, and gone over, emigrated over to Britain first in the United States named Klaus Fuchs, who was on the, working in the Manhattan Project and passing information to a Russian courier named Raymond, which had gotten back to the Russians. And, and Stalin didn't know all about it, but he certainly knew about the existence of the project and knew a good deal of you know, plans for the hydrogen bomb, not all the details, but some of the plans for the hydrogen bomb, uh, uh, rather the plutonium bomb, excuse me, had been, uh, had been sent by Klaus Fuchs through this courier and had re been received at the Kremlin. Well, since we're talking about the Kremlin, and I want to get back to politics because a lot of listeners want to weigh in and ask you questions on that vein, in that vein as well. But looking at a listener named Robert who says, as even Eisenhower believed, dropping the bomb was not a military necessity to defeat the Japanese, nor even a mass invasion of the homeland required. What does Chris Wallace think of the view that the bomb was dropped more as a demonstration and warning to the Soviet Union? I don't. Uh, you know, I know that that's uh, something that has been argued and particularly started to be argued when the Cold War began in earnest in the 1950s, I see no evidence that that was uh, part of uh, Truman's thinking, no evidence of, of that uh, at all. In fact, you know, one of the points I would make to a lot of your listeners, and I didn't know this, it wasn't drop the bomb or do nothing. It was drop the bomb or invade Japan. And, uh, and, and, Truman had gotten word from a number of his uh, top uh, military people, civilian and military, that uh, an invasion of Japan was going to be a bloodbath, that the war, we're talking now the summer of 45, the war was going to go on until the end of 46, so another year and a half. There'd be a million Japanese casualties, a half a million American casualties. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, they're going to surrender anyway. The fact is, we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima on August 6th, and the Japanese didn't surrender. 
and we dropped a second bomb on Nagasaki three days later on August 9th, and the Japanese military government still didn't surrender. Yeah. And it was only a day later on August 10th when Emperor Hirohito decided to take it into his own hands and arranged a radio broadcast to the nation, the first time the vast majority of the Japanese had ever heard his voice to say, enough, that, that, that we, this will be the destruction of Japan if we keep going. Uh, and, and so we, we need to surrender. So, you know, this idea Japan was on the brink of surrender, um, I don't see much evidence for it. Let me bring a caller aboard here, Yvette, that's you, join us, welcome. Hi, I don't know that I have a really a question um, other than um, just to comment and, and, and tie it back to the coronavirus that we face now. Um, my grandfather was a, one of the lead science technologists in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Both my parents are from there. I was born there. And um, he ran the uh, Calutron spinning that uranium. And I got to ask him in, you know, before he died about what that was like. And he said, we took it very seriously. We knew what we were doing, and we knew it was going to wreak havoc. But we, and we didn't, want, we didn't want to do it, but we knew it was something that needed to be done and that everyone worked together, um, you know, to accomplish something greater than themselves. And my mother spoke of that as well, you know, as she traveled to um, North Carolina where my great-grandmother lived, and people would ask her, where are you from? And she would, you know, seize up knowing that I'm old enough to say where I'm from, but I can't because the posters, loose lips, sink ships. And that we've lost something somehow between that generation and our generation where it's all about opinion rather than, you know, scientific facts and things that we can do to work together and things get way too politicized rather than focusing on, okay, what is our main enemy? What are we trying to defeat? And I feel like as if we just would, you know, everyone would talk in a way of like, let's just be smart about things. Cause that's the thing I felt like my grandfather, he just always looked at it, things from a very smart, let's, let's stop and think a minute. And, and think smartly. And so maybe that's what I was raised on that. And so that's how I'm approaching it. But I feel like we've lost that. Sound like you got a good legacy there from your grandfather. Yvette. Thank you for sharing that with us. I appreciate it. Would Want to comment, you, Chris? Yes, I do. Is that was her name Harriet? No, Lonnie Slover. Oh, OK. I just want to tell you, I love this phone call. Uh, and one of the joys of writing this book is I've gotten a lot of emails and letters from people you know, it, it's 75 years ago, uh, this August, it'll be exactly 75 years ago that we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. But we're, so it seems like it's kind of distant history, but we're only one or two generations removed from people. I mean, I've, I've talked to people whose father or grandfather was a scientist or was a, on the flight crew of, you know, of the Enola Gay. And, you know, it's such a joy to hear these stories. Um, and you're exactly right. Uh, interestingly enough, the scientists, the, the politicians, really very few of them had second thoughts, at least that they admitted to over the over the years. The the military, none of the uh, flight crew on the Enola Gay had any second thoughts. A number of the scientists did. In fact, some of them had first thoughts. Uh, Leo Zillard and and uh, uh, some of the others uh, were very questioning about using. The, and I think it was because they had had made the scientific breakthroughs. They had created the technology that enabled an atom bomb to be dropped. A number of them had, had grave doubts. And I told you earlier that, that Einstein kind of initiated this with his letter in 19, 
uh, 39, in 1954, just months before he died, he said the biggest single mistake he made in his life was pushing for the creation of the atom bomb. So there were a number of scientists who had, had if not first thoughts, second thoughts, and a, another you know, story you couldn't make up, up in October of 45, so just a couple of months after the dropping of the bomb, Robert Oppenheimer, who was the scientific director of the Manhattan Project, comes to the White House to meet with Harry Truman. And he says, Mr. President, I feel I have blood on my hands. And Truman says, don't worry about it. I have blood on my hands. And as soon as Oppenheimer leaves, he says to his staff, I never want to see that son of a bitch in this office ever again. So uh, a lot of the scientists had second, deep second thoughts uh, about the, the decision or their role in creating the bomb. But uh, uh, people like Harry Truman sure didn't. But it's, I'm trying I, to remember, yeah. what were Oppenheimer's famous words about Krishna and Arjuna? From I, the Bhagavad I am Gita? death destroyer of worlds yeah. from yeah. the from Bhagavad, the Bhagavad Gita. Gita. Yeah. Again, we're talking with Chris uh, Wallace. Let me... Um, Get to some of your comments here. Uh, this is actually uh, from Robert who says, Chris Wallace used the term conservative to describe his colleagues and many Republican governors. Can we please now dispense with this label towards people who only a few years ago would have been considered fringe extremists, touting views like global warming and the coronavirus as hoaxes? These people are not conservatives. That sounds like a conservative who's angry about the characterization of conservatives, Chris. Well, you know, I, I, I don't know. If you're talking about... Uh, senators in the Republican Party and governors in the Republican Party. I think I, I, I take Robert's point, but, you know, they are, they, you know, they certainly would call themselves conservatives. You can you can argue about it. I do think that. Could I insert the fact, uh, if I may, that George Will was on recently and he was saying these people that we're talking about here are not conservatives very firmly and very emphatically. Well, no, he and he's very. Uh, and he is the epitome of conservatism with the Republican Party. And I think that is a legitimate criticism that one can level. At, you know that I think that there are there are people who who had a certain view of the world and certain view on issues. You know whether it's trade or immigration or whatever, uh, who who seem to have been subsumed by the Trump phenomenon. And you know I think that that the President Trump was very forceful early on in his term with people like uh, like. Um, Jeff Flake of Arizona and Bob Corker of Tennessee, two senators who were very critical of him, he went after them, and uh, you know they both retired because they didn't see much of a future for themselves in the Republican Party. So, you know, it has been a an interesting takeover of the Republican Party by uh, by by President Trump, and especially were he to lose, not saying he's going to, but he's certainly behind right now. I think there's going to be quite an, an, an accounting inside the Republican Party of people who say, you know, you went too far in supporting President Trump and in deserting your the, the views that you've had over the past. Just read a book that blames it all on Newt Gingrich, and uh, we'll, we could take that up at another time. But I want to give you some pushback and give you an opportunity to respond to some of this pushback. Uh, Vanessa writes regarding Mr. Wallace saying that if one does not like what Fox News, uh, Fox News says, don't watch it. This is a cop-out. What a major news outlet puts on influences many people. And Todd writes, is there enough sophistication in the Fox audience to differentiate between the news and opinion or entertainment side of their organization? What happens if they cannot, yet it's called news? Is there a danger there? And how are you complicit? And one more from Ahmed, who says, I find Mr. Wallace is sidestepping 
the criticism of his colleagues' morally and factually corrupt behavior to be completely disingenuous. He's not fooling anyone. His paycheck still comes from News Corporation, the propaganda arm of the most dishonest, inept, corrupt, and seditious administration in this country's history. There's a lot packed in there, I realize, but you get the sense of where and how listeners are responding. I, you know, people don't, <laughs> there, I understand a lot of people don't like Fox News. You know, but one of the this this also speaks to the question that 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 woman who talked about her grandfather uh, before. Uh, look, I, I understand that we're in a different world, and and let me uh, commend a book to uh, to people that other than my own, Confound 1945, a book Ezra Klein wrote, "Why We're uh, Divided." And uh, it's a fascinating study of the polarization. Now, uh, Ezra is a is. I'm sorry, Chris, but we we featured it on on forum, and it's in our archives. The interview we did with Ezra Klein. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that he basically talks about the tribal. It's not just Republican and Democrat or liberal and conservative. That we've got tribes now, and you know, there's a demonization. The fact of the matter is. You know, I know a lot of your listeners don't like Donald Trump and they're entitled to their views, but the people who like Donald Trump are entitled to their views as well. And 60 plus million people voted for Donald Trump. And, you know, I'm not here to defend Donald Trump, but I I, I also think that this sort of demonization of a whole half of the country isn't particularly productive either. And, you know, there, there are two sides to the argument. And just as I think it's wrong for conservatives, and yes, I think they are conservatives, to to demonize Democrats or liberals and say, you know, they're wrong. I mean, you can hear the arguments they're making now. They want to see everything, our, our heritage destroyed and all the statues torn down and violence in the streets and defunding police. That's a caricature of what most liberals and Democrats believe. And conversely, the idea that, that all of the Republicans and all the Trump supporters are racists and xenophobes and all of that, that's a caricature as well. And what I'm about as a journalist is trying to deal in facts, trying to deal in nuance, trying to deal in shades of gray. And I know that doesn't necessarily satisfy everybody. Sometimes it doesn't satisfy anybody. I can show you emails where I've got, in the same interview, I've got liberals saying, uh, you know, you're a a, a supporter, a towel boy for Donald Trump. And meanwhile, I've got conservatives saying I'm a Trump hater, and uh, you know I think that speaks more to the listeners than it does to me. I've had the same experiences as a broadcaster. I've been in the game almost as long as you have. Let me get another caller on here, though. David joins us next. David, good morning. Oh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. And I'd like to first thank uh, Mr. Wallace for his book. I'm very much looking forward to it. My father enlisted in the Navy in, on December 8th, 41, and um, was a lieutenant commander. And I was privileged to do some work with Mr. Teller when he was at the Hoover Institution, who was a very thoughtful uh, commentator on uh, nuclear weapons. But my, my question really is um, for Mr. Wallace, who's one of the most thoughtful commentators on network television, and I wonder whether that isn't damning with faint praise. It, it seems to me as if the very format of uh, commercial television leads to either stupid questions or stupid answers. Um, and I wonder whether the brevity of commercial television is part of the problem in that it 
leaves no room for nuance or complexity. Boy, David, excuse uh, me, you've raised a, a, a very complex and nuanced question uh, when we only have seconds left, but I'd like to hear what Chris Wallace has to say. Thank you for the question, well, David. Look, anybody who does a show like mine is always frustrated when you have a great guest on and let's say you have 10 or 12 minutes and uh, you'd like to talk to them for 20 or 30, like, like Michael has had the opportunity to do here. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, we're able to expose people to ideas and, and facts that they might never have heard. And uh, I'm very proud of what I do. I, you know, I'd like to have longer interviews and uh, maybe someday I will. Michael, thank you very much. I very much appreciate talking to you and I appreciate the, the listeners and the commenters, even some of them who I think may have been dead wrong. Thank you, Chris Wallace. Good to have you with us. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.